Hi, good evening, everybody. Good evening. Okay, so my name is Rob Tao. Thank you so much to AFOX for this invitation to, to talk to you about a labor of love. Now, this presentation has nothing at all to do with my PhD research or even my postdoc research, which is great. It's about a labor of love that I've been working on for about six years now. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to you, talk through my two children's books, Bagba and Jade. I'm going to tell you why I decided to write these two children's books um, and sort of the transnational, national, and global outreach that I've done across the globe, not just in the continent of Africa, but across the globe. Um, and then I'll end up with some conclusions in terms of um, future um, outreach that I'm going to be doing in the, in the very, very near future. Um, so Bagba and Jade are two anti-corruption children's books. And I have a friend who says in jest to me, only you, Rob Tell, would write an anti-corruption children's books. Only you would conjure up something like this. Um, and I think because he's, the reason he says this is because I come from a, an activist background. Um, but what I discovered in, in terms of thinking about corruption and thinking about integrity is that quite often these conversations are had in adult circles. Right? We don't really think about how our actions impact the children in our lives, whether they're our children or the children that we come in contact with who are in our ambit. Right? The other thing that I think about is um, you think about folk tales, right? folk tales that we all grew up with um, in the continent um, that really teach us about virtues and vices. Right? So I borrow from this tradition of the folk tales, but instead of using anthropomorphic characters, I use actual human beings. And these actual human beings are children. Right? Um, so the, the two books are basically about two characters, twin characters, Sundayma and Sundayga, who leave their port city of Buchanan. And they leave their port city of Buchanan in Liberia, and they go and they visit their aunt and uncle, um, Auntie Madie and Uncle Momo in Monrovia, the capital of Liberia. And when they go to the city, the capital city, they're super, super excited. But they have a series of experiences and encounters that remind them of these two Basa words. Now, Basa is one of 16 languages spoken in Liberia. Two Basa words, Bagba and Jade. Now, Bagba loosely translated means corruption or trickery, effectively. But the way that I describe it in the book is not bribery or so forth and so on, not adult language. I describe it simply as lying, cheating, and stealing, right? Um, in Jare, which is a sequel to Bagba, Jare effectively means integrity, honesty, and truthfulness. And the books are effectively about opposites, right? What does it mean to practice Bagba? What does it mean to practice Jade? Um, now, before I launch into my presentation, I'd like to read excerpts. What do you think? So you can get a taste of the books. And this is why I've co-opted Jake and Yvonne to, to show you the illustrations, because the books were published by One More Book, which is a small niche publisher based in the United States and Liberia, founded by Liberian artists in their own right, right? Because they noticed that there is a dearth of um, children's books that are written for children in countries with low literacy rates, where children can see themselves reflected in the narrative, right? The books were also illustrated by Chase Walker, who is a self-taught Liberian visual artist. He served as a political cartoonist in a number of local dailies in Liberia for a number of years and has since relocated to the United States where he can hone his craft. Now, Jade, I'm so, so excited to say, is in both Basa and English. And we co-opted a Basa linguist by the name of Bishop Amos Ba to translate the book into Basa. And I'll tell you a little bit later about why I decided to focus on a local Liberian language. So without further ado, Jake and um, Yvonne, are you guys ready? So I'm going to read from Bagba first. And basically to set the scene, so they, they, the Sundayma and Sundayga have arrived in Monrovia, 
and they've been picked up by their auntie Marty, who is a big woman in the government. She is actually a minister. And they're sitting in traffic, and I think this is an experience that we all have experienced if you spend any time on the continent or outside of the continent. They're sitting in traffic for hours on end, and they're becoming really, really antsy, right? And the driver does something very interesting, um, which you'll, you'll find out in the book. So the driver's name is Opa. When Opa drove to Vamoma House and Tubman Boulevard, Sunday Ma and Sunday God stared in surprise. The long traffic lines of red, blue, brown, and white cars went as far as the eye could see. Like a chorus, the drivers began to honk together loudly. Don't worry, Auntie Marie said, we will find a way out of this traffic. Next page. When the traffic finally moved forward, Opa drove right to the police officer at the junction. I'm very thirsty, the police officer said, standing between the cars. Now, when I read this out to the children, they become really confused because they think, how did she conjure up that police officer's voice? <laughs> I want some cold water today in this heat. Opa rolled down the window slowly and held out his hand. Sundema and Sundaga both noticed the clean 100 Liberian dollar bill, which the police officer put in his pocket quickly. He waved Opa's car through the traffic in a line that was not there before. Sundema and Sundaga were confused by what Opa did and disappointed in the policeman's unfairness to the other drivers. In Buchanan, Ma and Pa always reminded them that they should not jump in front of others in line. Okay, now in the spirit of opposites, I'm gonna read an excerpt from Jade. So they're back in traffic again, right? It's a few days later, they're back in traffic. Opa drove along Tubman Boulevard to 15th Street where the traffic stopped suddenly. Not again, the twins squealed, remembering Monrovia traffic only days before. In Buchanan, the traffic lines of red, green, yellow, and white cars never went that far. Most people rode pimpins or fast motorcycles that sped over concrete and dust. When Opa tried to create a third lane to escape the traffic, the driver in the car nearby warned, Take time, driver. That police officer ahead is not easy, oh. Now, this is my favorite scene in the entire book. Auntie Marie motioned for Opa to get back into the two-lane traffic. After one hour of moving at a snail's pace, they finally entered the free flow of cars and saw why the traffic was blocked. A woman police officer, no more than five feet tall, was standing in the middle of the road with her hands placed squarely on her hips. Whenever drivers tried to create a third lane, she used sharp hand movements to get them back in line. Has to be a woman. <laughs> Feminist to the core, what can I say? Sunday Ma and Sunday God noticed how she stopped drivers who tried to slip crisp Liberian dollars in the palm of her hands. Instead of taking the money, 
the officer would direct the drivers one by one to the side of the road. Each time she took out a notepad, wrote something quickly, and handed slips of paper to the drivers. Sunday Mai was curious. What is that policewoman doing, Auntie Marie? She asked. Now, at this point, I pause and I ask the children what they think the policewoman is doing, and I get all sorts of responses. But we'll flip to the next page. I won't ask you. We'll flip to the next page and find out what happens. It looks like she is giving tickets to the drivers who tried to create a third lane, Auntie Marie said. That woman officer is not easy, oh, Auntie Marie, Sandega repeated. Unlike the policeman who tried, who directed traffic on their first day in Monrovia, this woman knew about Jade. Sunday Ma and Sandega rolled down their windows and eagerly waved at her. The policewoman tipped her cap in their direction and winked. Be asking me why Jade and Bagba? Why uh, anti-corruption children's books? Why focus on children? Um, so when I was in my mid-20s, in, in fact, immediately after doing the MSc in African Studies with Jake, I moved back to Liberia um, as a mid-level aide to the first democratically elected president, a woman, um, the first female elected president of Liberia. But what I realized in those four years of working with and for President's Relief is that corruption wasn't just about, when you think about corruption, it's always thought of in very formal terms, right? So it's public using public influence for private gain or using entrusted power for private gain. But what I realized, and even social psychologists would argue, is that corruption really was a social norm, right? It was embedded in the unwritten rules, the unspoken practices that people engaged in on a day-to-day -day basis, right? Corruption effectively was enmeshed in everyday human interactions I discovered in Liberia, right? It wasn't just the public influence for private gain, but effectively lying, cheating, and stealing in the everyday. This is how I describe it to children. But I think what was interesting is because I saw corruption in the public sector, and I saw corruption in the private sector, and I saw corruption in the media, and I saw the corruption in the churches and the mosques, in the informal private sector, right? I saw corruption everywhere. It wasn't until I had two encounters with adolescents and young adults that really shook my core of gravity. And I'll tell you about those encounters. So the first was I was charged with the responsibility of basically overhauling Liberia's bilateral scholarships program. We discovered that people, surprisingly enough, were selling scholarships to the highest bidder. They were giving scholarships to their relatives, their girlfriends, their whoever, um, and they weren't going to the best and brightest in Liberia. So the president called me in because I'd done a series of investigative uh, reports for her, and she said, well, Rabtel, what do we do about this? And I said, we need to come up with a committee that will completely change the system, that will completely make scholarships merit-based, transparent, as well as gender balanced. And as somebody who's benefited from scholarships my entire life, I realized that this was an important imperative, right? So we set up the committee. It was an interministerial committee um, represented by a number of different ministries and agencies in Liberia. And we started to develop the process of people actually applying through a merit-based, transparent, and gender balanced process, right? What we discovered is about four 18-year-old boys forged their national exam records to become eligible for a scholarship to Morocco. And when we called them in to give them a sense of why they had effectively done something wrong, committed a crime, an academic crime, but also a, uh, an offense, an academic offense, um, they 
had sort of normalized and, and, and said to us that they didn't think there was anything wrong with it. In fact, it took them almost 30 minutes to eventually confess that they had forged these national exam records. Um, and that was confusing to me because I thought, well, these 18-year-olds are on the verge of adulthood. And they have already internalized corruption as a social norm. They've already realized that the only way to get ahead is through hook and crook, right? The second encounter was teaching at the University of Liberia, which was by far my most um, profound experience. Um, speaking to university students about whether or not giving a traffic officer a, some money, as, as you saw in the story, is a form of corruption. And the students said, no, it's not corruption, it's contribution. <laughs> And what they meant by that is, you know, low-level civil servants in Liberia get paid very, very little, right? So they were contributing to the salary structure of that traffic officer because they know very well that he can't afford to supply, you know, his daily needs or to his, his livelihood is constantly threatened, right? So they give a contribution every time they pass by him in order to help him live and survive and to, you know, supply his family's daily needs. Um, what was interesting about these, these two encounters, again, is that people at that age had already started to rationalize their dubious deeds. So what I realized is that I really wanted to focus on kids because my, my argument is that young adults have already been schooled in the ways of corruption, right? They, they, they think that it's the way to get ahead, right? By any means necessary, young adults as well as adults. So what we need to do effectively is to build a new generation of integrity advocates, a new generation of anti-corruption champions, right? And to develop that moral compass. Social psychologists argue that children begin to develop an ethical core and a moral compass between the ages of eight and 10. And there's some kids who even develop that much, much earlier on, right? So that's basically the target group of these two books. The other thing I realize is that children are relatively honest, and I say relatively because I've been called out by a number of parents who say, have you ever seen a two-year-old lie? <laughs> so this, this particular parent said to me that I had a very naive outlook about children, so I put that qualify, qualifier in there. Children are relatively honest until we socialize them to be dishonest, until we teach them how to lie. So I have a story, and you've probably heard this in your own particular cultural context, but the story is there's a mother and a child at home, right? It's become urban legend in Liberia, folklore. There's a mother and child at home, and the mother gets a knock at the door, right? And she looks through the peephole and realizes it's auntie so-and-so, and she actually doesn't want to talk to auntie so-and-so. So she hides and she tells the child, tell auntie so-and-so so -and -so I'm not here. And the child nods emphatically and says, okay, mama. The child goes to the door, opens the door and says, auntie so-and-so, my mom just told me I should tell you that she is not here. Now, come on, that's a funny story, isn't it? I usually get more laughs than that, but basically, <laughs> The, the reason I tell this story and the reason I think it's so emblematic of how we teach children to lie is effectively that child told the truth, right? Told the God's truth that some of the children have told me in my workshops, right? Um, but that adult tried to convince the child to lie and the child just didn't have it in him. He was very, very transparent um, about what the mother had told him. The third thing I realize is that because we talk about corruption or anti-corruption in adult circles and we forget how it affects children, um, that we forget also that children can also be anti-corruption allies, 
right? That they can be um, our allies in this fight in terms of exposing corruption as a social norm and perhaps changing those norms to reflect the kind of societies that we want to create, right? Um, because I think we can cultivate that inherent honesty, that, that natural honesty that children have. And what I call this is effectively a revolution from below. So I hope you'll join me in this revolution from below. So what's my theory of change? Right? I think it's possible to reverse the socialization process. Right? We talked about the fact that corruption is a social norm. Um, corruption can be taught, but it can also be unlearned. Right? So we can reverse that socialization process in terms of us training children how to lie and training children how to be dishonest by equipping children with the verbal tools to really question the confusing ethical codes of the adult. So effectively, we tell children to be truthful and honest but we're not truthful and honest in our everyday interactions. And children are so astute. They pick up on those cultural codes, even if we're not verbally telling them, right? Um, and I think that by doing this, by reversing this socialization process and equipping children with the verbal tools to question the confusing ethical codes of the adult, that we may enable, we may be enabled to embarrass the adult into adopting more ethical behavior, right? There's something about a child telling you that you're a liar without effectively telling you you're a liar. That, that does something about stabilizing um, how you behave and how you interact with that child. The other thing that I think is important is um, this particular revolution from below enables us to frame children as the identifiable victims of corruption. And what identifiable victims are are clear, clearly identified um, individuals who are affected by corruption, right? Because when we think about corruption, we say, oh, corruption hurts all of us. It hurts society. But if you think about corruption as hurting your children or hurting the children in your lives, I think it'll force us to think about how we live and practice on a day-to-day -day basis. And then the last thing I think is important to realize, a lot of people critique my approach and they said, well, why focus on children? They can't change policies, right? But for me, it's not about changing policy. We have enough regulations on the books about corruption, right? Do we enforce them? No. What I'm interested in is changing values is changing practices, is changing those social norms that we are so embedded in. And I think children can be an important tool in doing that, right? So what are some of the methodologies that I've used, both informal and formal? And I think for me, it's been a labor of love because it's been a labor of love collaboratively. I've worked with so many phenomenal people, not only my illustrator, my publisher, my translator, but a number of policymakers as well as people who are in the arts. So one of the things that I'm doing with these two books is I'm basically taking corruption out of its linguistic prison. Now, I don't, I don't know if you are familiar with Ngugi Wathiango's 1986 book, Decolonizing the Mind, right? And in this book, um, Kenyan novelist Ngugi argues that when African writers write in colonial languages, they're effectively putting their ideas in a linguistic prison because it's not a language that they, is their mother tongue effectively. So what I'm doing is I'm taking the language of corruption. So Bagba and Jare are, Basa, are, are in the Basa language. And I think most of us, if we say the word corruption, we find it's equivalent in our language, it has much more force. I think corruption has become such a cliched phrase these days. But think about how you say corruption in your own language. And think about how much that carries a certain weight and a force that saying the word, the English word corruption, doesn't necessarily. So for instance, in Liberia, when you say Bagba, 
I always like to say it and then I laugh and I say, ooh, say it again. Bagba, ooh, say it again. When you say that to a Basa language speaker, that person knows that that word is that bad thing. That's how it effective, that's what it means in, in, in very, very layman's terms. When you say the word jare has a certain value as well that integrity doesn't or truthfulness doesn't, right? The other thing is, I think it's important to use multimedia tools because a lot of children won't necessarily have access to these two books. So the written text may be cost prohibitive for some people. Um, and so what I've done is I've worked with local artists in Liberia to create adaptations of the book into a song and a music video. Now on your far left, you'll see um, the music video cover for Jada is Integrity. It's a music video and a song that I collaborated with Takunje, who is a very popular um, social activist in Liberia, but also a, a hip co artist. And he does a lot of songs around social issues in Liberia, around corruption and anti-rape and so forth and so on. And talk about nepotism, he collaborated with, with my younger sister, Ella Mancompeli, who is a phenomenal vocalist. And they came up with the song Jade's Integrity, which is an adaptation of uh, the Jade book. But I've also worked with Flomo Theater, which is a local theater troupe in Liberia, to create a radio drama, five-minute radio drama that's been played on about 64 commercial as well as community radio stations across Liberia. Um, and then a stage play with Flomo Theater as well that features an all-child cast. Now, there's something very powerful about children mimicking adults, right? And as you see from the photos there, the traffic officer in the middle, in the middle photo, um, this scene was probably the most pro profound scene, and everybody thought it was really funny, but it made a lot of the policymakers in the room think about um, how they engage in corruption, how they use their entrusted power for private gain when they're in traffic. Um, so yeah, Flomo Theater and I collaborated on that. They got 25 children trained within a five-month period to put on this debut stage production. Uh, what we're doing now is we're expanding the, because it was focused on Bagba at the time, since Bagba was published in 2013, we're expanding it to include Jade. So it's Bagba and Jade, the stage play, which will be debuted next spring in Monrovia. And the idea is to take this play on the road to different regions of Liberia and possibly to a country or a city near you. Um, all of these multimedia tools were funded by the Open Society Initiative for West Africa. And as you know, Osiwa does a lot of work on transparency and integrity. Um, and they were the, the perfect ally to work on this project with me. I also realized that it was important to work with the Ministry of Education because my goal is to get these books in the national curriculum in Liberia, not just in Liberia, but across the continent. Because for me, this is a Pan-African crusade, right? So I've worked with the Ministry of Education in Liberia um, to adopt both books as a supplemental reader for third to fifth grades. I've also gone to Ghana, and the Ghana, Ghana Education Service has also put the book on the supplemental reader list for third to fifth grades. And then effectively, I've also done pilots in 30 schools in Liberia. We've worked with the Ministry of Education curriculum team in Liberia to create a teacher's guide so that teachers have some activities to work with children in the classroom. Um, and for me, that's, that sort of formal adoption into the curriculum and then the formal adoption in the teacher's guide is an important way to spread the message of Bagba and Jade across the country, across the continent, across the globe. Workshops. I think the workshops that I've done in 11 countries have been the most worthwhile experience because it's given me a lot of fodder for possibly future books. A lot of the children in the workshops will ask me, Ms. Robtel, is, is there going to be a part three? And I hadn't even thought about it as a possibility, but now I'm realizing that there's such a yearning and a thirst for these kinds of books amongst the children that I've, that I've interacted with. So I've done workshops in Brazil, in Cote d'Ivoire, in Jamaica, in Kenya, Liberia, Madagascar, Mozambique, Qatar, South Africa, UK. 
and US. Um, and I haven't stopped. I'm continuing. Um, so if you have any uh, invites, please let me know after this presentation is over. The purpose of these workshops, so the purpose of these uh, workshops is really to be in a dialogue with children about the whys of corruption. So why does corruption happen? Um, and the hows of corruption. So how does corruption manifest itself in society? And then most importantly, what can be done about it? And for me, having the children talk about why corruption happens, how it happens, and what can be done about it, for me, is the most profound um, part of this experience. So I have some quotes from different workshops that I've done across Africa. Um, there was a child in Kenya who said to me that we should all tell God's truth. And that was her description of Jade. So God's truth is, is unfiltered. God's truth is, is unrationalized. God's truth is the truth with a capital T as far as she was concerned. In Liberia, one child said to me, in Bagba, there are no real winners, only losers, right? Such a profound thing coming from an eight-year-old. Um, and what I realized in the workshops is that children were absolutely pre preoccupied with the unfairness of corruption, right? The injustice of corruption. And they talked about that a lot. Um, in South Africa, someone said, jumping the traffic queue may cause an accident, right? So beyond just the, the sheer um, corrupt practice of actually paying a traffic officer a bribe, this child was thinking about the consequences, right? So if you create a third lane, that could actually cause an accident, right? In Mozambique, um, one child said to me, people who sell expired goods must go to jail. And they were thinking about the consequences, because the books talk about not only how corruption manifests itself, but also the consequences. So what should happen to people who engage in corrupt practices? Um, so these two pictures on your right from Kenya, um, a, a young boy was answering a question. And then in the middle is a workshop that I did in Madagascar with a number of children. And as you can see, we did a bit, a bit of a simulated exercise a traffic officer, um, I was pretending to be the traffic officer, and I paid the young boy in the front, or he paid me some money so that he could move from the back of the line to the front of the line. And when the children realized what, what had happened, they were laughing, but then immediately they started to get very angry. Because again, the injustice of just giving a police officer money to come to the front of the line, it's usually the last person in line, uh, sort of the penultimate person who gets very upset. Because now they're the last person. <laughs> In fact, in one workshop in the US, I asked a girl to give me money and she gave it to me and she came to the front of the line and, and then her friends were upset that she made it to the front of the line. And then I asked her, I said, well, why are you in the front of the line? She said, because you asked me for money and I gave it to you. So, you know, the, the, it's sort of instinctual. Um, a lot of other children have said that they would pay a bribe, they were honest, that they would pay a bribe because they don't like sitting in traffic in Nairobi for hours on end. Um, what was interesting about the experience in Nairobi is that a couple of days after I had the workshop in Nairobi with the, the, the children at St. George's Primary School, I went to the Kenya Institute of Curriculum Development the next day. And if you've been following Twitter, you probably know about what happened. Basically, I was solicited. Um, the person who I interacted with at the KICD, because I was pitching the books as a possible um, supplemental reader for the new curriculum, asked me for 2,000 United States dollars to do the assessment of the book, the evaluation of the book. So what's interesting is that what I realized throughout this experience is that it's not just the children. It's not just the children who need Bagba and Jade. It's also the adults, right? So a lot of adults will look at the book and say, oh, it's a children's book. It's benign. But it's not. If you read them, you realize that it really calls, it calls to task adults. It says that your actions, your behavior has an, an impact on the children in your life. 
And furthermore, I believe fundamentally that children can be the moral compass of the world. And in the book, the twin characters, Sandema and Sandega, are the moral compass of the book, right? So it's almost an inversion of the social order. We often think that it's the adults in our lives who will teach us virtues. But for me, I think sometimes it's the children in our lives who have the power and the capacity to teach us about virtues, right? So I'll talk about, a little bit about some of my future interventions. So I've talked about the children's, um, the all-child cast, the idea is to take the, the all-child cast play on the road once we combine the two books. Um, to schools, to mosques, to churches, town halls, ministries, and agencies um, in something what we call the forum theater. How many people are familiar with the forum theater format? So basically forum theater is after the play is debuted, the all-child cast lines up and we enable the, the audience to ask them questions. And what they're supposed to do is respond in character. Right? We did that with their debut in September 2017, and I was astounded by the responses that I got. So one child from a local primary school stood up and asked the police officer who was playing the police officer, the young boy who was playing the police officer, police officer, what do we need to do as a society to stop you from taking bribes? <laughs> right? An audience member, probably 10 or 11 years old. And the police officer said, increase my salary. <laughs> This is coming from an eight-year-old child. So what this child had realized through that five-month process of not only going through the theater production, but understanding um, the difficulties that police officers face is that living wages in Liberia are too low. That corruption is also a function of poverty in as much as it's a function of greed. Right, so form theater, a really, really powerful tool. The other thing I wanna do is I wanna expand the pilots beyond just Monserrato and Grand Bassa County. The pilots have been in two counties, two regions of Liberia, to go to the three most populous counties in Liberia, so Nimba, Lofa, and Bong. Um, and then beyond Liberia, transcending Liberia, is to take the pilots to different countries, beginning with English-speaking West Africa. So Ghana, Nigeria, and then Southern Africa, South, South Africa, Kenya, I'm coming. Even, even though they tried to, even though they tried to de derail me, I'm realizing that Bagba and Jada are sorely needed in Kenya, right? Um, and the idea is to work with the ministries of education, the ed education boards in these countries, as well as the anti-corruption agencies, because I think they're an important ally in this process as well. And then penultimately, translating the books into other African languages and other official languages. So I've been approached by Hausa speakers, by Swahili speakers, by Malagasy speakers to translate the books into these local languages, in addition to the colonial French and Arabic and Spanish. Um, last but certainly not least, to adapt the books into a board game. A lot of people have said there could be a Bagba and Jade board game even a TV animation. An illustrator in Kenya has, uh, has also approached me and said that he'd like to change the books or adapt the books into a TV anim animation. So as you can see from the future in interventions, Bagba and Jade are coming to a city, country, and continent near you. Thank you. Thank you.